Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. My name is Mark Norquist, and today I'm going to be joined by a few people. Uh, I've got Darrell Smith from the Minority Outdoor Alliance, along with Chris Rockwell, who is the board chair for uh, MOA, as well as Colby Kerber, who is the hunting heritage manager from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And so we all caught up at Pheasant Fest 2022 in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, if you're not familiar with this event, it is an annual gathering celebration by the organizations Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, where there are presentations, dinners, uh, really a, a fun gathering of the most passionate upland bird hunters and conservationists across the U.S., and so we got together, uh, this small group, to talk about the Minority Outdoor Alliance and the things that Durrell and Chris and the rest of the people over there are doing this year and some of the work that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is doing with the Minority Outdoor Alliance. And um, look for more in the coming months and, and years because uh, Modern Carnivore and Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever and the Minority Outdoor Alliance are doing different projects together and we're having a lot of fun and hopefully making an impact in the hunting world and welcoming a lot of new people into this lifestyle that uh, we all appreciate so much. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Make sure you check out the Minority Outdoor Alliance, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And here we go. Okay, we are here at Pheasant Fest 2022, and I'm joined by a couple friends here this morning, Darrell and Chris. How are you guys doing? Great. Freaking great, man. Fantastic. I've had too much Fantastic. fun here. <laughs> too much, yeah. It has been fun to to sort of reopen the world, it feels like. Yes. Like two years ago, Pheasant Fest, the last Pheasant Fest, was mm -hmm. right before everything mm -hmm. shut down. Yep. And this is very early on things opening back up, and yep. it's it's very odd to be with people right again. Right? Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's like the weird like, what are we doing here? When you right. when we got off the airplane, it was like we're actually socializing. Like, right? I need to relearn how to do that. <laughs> like, you know, how do we be around a lot of people? But I'm I'm excited about it, man, and. Everybody here, I think, in addition to the excitement about um, just being together, I think there's the new news of, like, all the stuff we've been working on in the interim, you know, like new yeah. programs, organizations, all kinds of things that's coming up, which is, of course, why we're all here. So I'm excited. Yeah, abs absolutely. I, c I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, uh, there were so many people I saw at this event who were meeting for the very first time even mm -hmm. though they knew each other well because they've been zooming for the last two years yeah yeah <laughs> it's like like even you i mean you and i've spoke plenty of times right like plenty of time and it's just like hello human being yes. like <laughs> yeah. not a digital person like right. you're actually like not a robot yeah you got legs <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. yes you have legs because no one ever sees it right exactly exactly <laughs> well um Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, about the Minority Outdoor Alliance. So, um, when when was this this organization formed? So we Minority Outdoor Alliance. Um, my wife and I, Ashley, we founded it um, in 2020. That summer, when George Floyd was murdered, that pretty much triggered the calling card. You know, um, yeah. we had by that point in time, you know, had enough of, of, of an influence in the Upland space enough to be like, all right, well, what do we do with this responsibility? Right. Like, and so it, it, it really started and how I met Chris, matter of fact, was just, I got on the uh, project Upland live stream, matter of fact, um, AJ was like, look, dude, I, I you should talk about like, you know, really dope stuff coming from minorities, but particularly my in my field of expertise, um, you know, African-American history, particularly as it relates to the outdoors, conservation, and, and, and really upland hunting. Um, 
and it got a ton of reception, like really good reception. Um, and those proceeds that we had raised from, um, we were basically using that as an opportunity to raise money um, through the sales of, of various merchandise and things like that um, to put towards a um, a, a um, social justice initiative of my choosing. Okay. So, enter Chris, who yeah. came in and was like, I think this is really dope. Do you guys know each other before or not? No. no. Actually, uh, but, you know, Darrell had been, as you were running the Project Upland mm-hmm. uh, Instagram feed, and yeah, they had done a, uh, a post about, uh, they were doing a sale in the store, and all the proceeds went to, I can't even remember what groups you, you were trying to fund, but they were minority groups, right. and minority supporting groups, and uh, my my job outside of uh, corralling Darrell is... Um, <laughs> And that's a tough job. I thought it was, was Ashley's job. Yeah, that's, we it, need two people. <laughs> two people. Yeah, it, it's, it, we need two people. And it's, I mean, it's it's tough to keep him, you know, Ooh. keep him in check. I can, I can see that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so so uh, my my job outside of that is uh, I'm a trustee for a, a foundation, and we do mostly conservation work. But uh, one of the things that I have done, um, I'm a big believer in in smaller grants so five thousand dollar grants that can make real impactful mm-hmm. um changes and um what i've done in the past is found groups like what Darrell was trying to do and said okay look really like what you're doing um i will match your sales proceeds up to five thousand dollars and you tell me where you want it to go we'll fill it out and we'll get it done awesome and so i sent him that message i said hey um really like what you're doing uh, i'd like to do this and he he sent back a message that said you know can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And, you know, so he calls me and we're talking and, uh, he, he says, well, I'm, I'm starting this thing called the minority outdoor lines. And this is what we're trying to do. And, and this, this piece resonated with me for a, a number of different reasons. But, um, you know, I said, well, are you a nonprofit? He said, we're working on it. And I said, well, you give me the paperwork and I'll give you $5,000 we'll just make that work and yeah. uh because I, I want you to start and i want yeah. you to succeed and this is a hugely important issue wow that's great yeah. i mean it it, it truly what a, what a great example of you guys coming together different skill sets different different resources you bring to the table put them together yep. and that's what it takes yep right yep yep so at yep. that point did you have did you have like mission established things like that or were you working on it or we were we were working on just building the whole thing because you know, in my experience, I had never been exposed to the, the, the nonprofit world. So it was a big learning curve for I me. Bet. Um, but the mission, um, and it's since grown and evolved, you know, since then. But the mission, we, we, we started with, all right, how do we do this? Well, let's go with the tagline of bringing the unlikely to the outdoors. And like I said, we've since evolved off of that. But that was enough for us to work off of and say, like, all right. We never wanted to be, number one, a monolith, and we wanted to make sure that the work could continue, Mm -hmm. right? Like, once we had, our goal was to, like, make an impact with the racial and ethnic and and those, you know, diversity and inclusion issues. And it was kind of, we never wanted to be in a situation where we were like, all right, well, we're done now, and we have no larger calling. Right. So it, it started with, all right, we can work around bringing the unlikely to the outdoors. We can define unlikely in 50 million different ways, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was our initial, like, coming or, or debut mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and, it, and it really made us think, right, like, what, who, like, who are we targeting right now? You know, we have, we understand the racial disparities, but we also want to work in a way that what we say is not exclusionary. We always wanted to be inclusive. Right. And so framing our work around that really, really helped. So are you defining minority in a very broad way then still mm-hmm. with yeah. it? Yeah. It It's something that I honestly, I'm going to just be truly frank with you. I hope that one day, like, we question ourselves on whether we need to keep the word minority mm-hmm. in the organization. Yeah. Like, yeah, seriously. Right. No, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, like, I hope that we have to come together as an organization to be like, all right, so we've done really good work. Mm-hmm. Is this still, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the, the minority piece, right? Right. Um, because right now it's, it's, it's so 
pertinent and, and relevant and, and important, you know, um, but the alliance piece is also just as important, right? Like, again, we're not a monolith. So we want to make sure that the work that we do, we can partner with people. Mm-hmm. You know, we can bring more people in, people that were already in the space in addition, you know, and use that to empower us to work with people who want to come into the space. Right. right. That right. was an alliance. The word minority, it, it's one of those things. It's, it's necessary to understand that. But like I personally would like to not see quote unquote minorities in the uplands, right? Like mm-hmm. as far as like everyone should be popular, right? Everyone, it, we should normalize mm-hmm. various cultures and, and various diasporas and, and things like that in the outdoors. It shouldn't be like a, oh, I like to go hunt and we don't have any black people here, right? We don't have any Asian Americans. We don't have any Latino. Like, no, it should be like, I like to go hunt and I expect to see different kinds of people out there just and normalize it right mm-hmm. if we do that my logic is well we're no longer talking about minorities now we're just talking about you know creating alliances in the outdoors for the sake of supporting each other right but right now i understand the per- like the urgency of you know the word minority right i understand that there it is an urgent need that we need to see more more diversity there and I just want to get to a point where we're not necessarily focused on the ethnic piece, right? Yeah. Because it's already a part of it. Like if we think about it now in America, like all of our cultures and, and, and all of our histories, I keep saying this have intersected in some way, form or fashion. Right. But one particular, like predominantly white culture has been the domineering force here. Right. But like Mark, I'm sure that like in your in, in your ancestors and in, in, in all the people in your past probably intersected right with 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 and I'm going way back. Right. I'm going way back. I'm sure that there, there may have been some intersection with your people who may have learned from old black people. Right. Mm-hmm. I would like to investigate that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Where I know for a fact that like Latino culture out west directly influenced black culture when we started going out west right like those things we we were sharing that information teaching each other new things and and that's what happened we add to the utility belt i don't i don't want you know i don't want it to be a thing that we're surprised to see black folk out in the outdoors we're surprised it shouldn't be a surprise well, you bring up a you bring up a really important point. I think actually, and something that 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 I've discussed a lot with different people, which is um, how do you how do you put attention around specific issues that are important, gender, ethnicity, what have you, um, create comf- comfort of of familiarity there, but also don't start to create mm-hmm. subsets, right? Right. Where okay, here's your minority outdoor alliance hunting community that doesn't interconnect with the other hunting communities, with the women's community, with right. the traditional community, et cetera. And I think, I think that's an important thing. And I don't know if do you guys talk about that at all from yeah. the standpoint of, yeah, one big thing in the minority outdoor Alliance is education. It's not two big things is education and storytelling. Right. Yeah. I like to think about the idea that like way back in the day, like way hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years ago when human beings were hunting for, you know, to, to live, right? We all sat around a campfire, right? Some of us may have known where we were. Some of us may have been walking and been like, oh, shoot. Well, you know, my people or, you know, something may have happened to them or whatever the case may be. And then you, you, you know, uh, link up with another group, right? And we're all sitting around this campfire, right? Well, what's, why are we doing it? We're sharing stories. We're sharing experiences. You know, it, we make, we make people that are unfamiliar now relatable, you know, because the thing is, especially with hunting and fishing, everybody has success and everybody has failure. And that looks, you know, that's the part, that's the common denominator, we make people feel comfortable by just being vulnerable, right? 
everybody's missed a shot. <laughs> everybody has done, everybody's bird dog has given them that look of like, dude, really? You know, everybody has those triumph, those hero stories, right? Everybody has something to laugh at. And, and in those settings, sitting around a campfire, everybody looks the same. It's dark, man. Everybody's orange from, from the glow of the fire. <laughs> and we get comfortable, right? You, you make it a situation where people feel like they're at home, right? Everybody wants to hear how somebody had to figure out how to succeed. And that has nothing to do at that point with your ethnic background. Like, no, dang, I didn't realize, you know, uh, Joe Blow down the street was dealing with the same problems and getting any outdoors that I was. And now that we had a conversation, dang, man, I want to help you out. I figured this out now. Let me help you out. Yeah. You know? So... Also joined here uh, by my friend Colby Kerber. How you doing, Colby? I'm doing great, Mark. Um, you guys decided, so Colby is the hunting heritage. And you actually, you, you say it because I'll, I'll mess <laughs> it up. I'm the National Hunting Heritage Program Manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Okay. See, I couldn't have said it like that. <laughs> um, so you guys have made a decision to do some things with minority outdoor lines. So like finding that common ground, there you go. There's a great right. example. So like, what, what are you guys, what are you guys going to be doing this year? Yeah, well, all kinds of things. So <laughs> yep. I, I don't know how long our podcast is going to be, but um, you know, uh, path to the uplands is, is really something that we focused on over the last couple of years. And um, you know, at Pheasant Fest in Minneapolis, when we had path to the uplands for the first time on the stage, it was something where we, we really shifted a lot of our focus, you know, and opened the door, and made it more welcoming. And um, we, we've really grown our Path to the Uplands initiative um, through our chapters, through our partners, through the industry, you know, and it's it's really taken off over the last couple of years and um, allowed different unique individuals to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. You know, as Darrell talked about, that narrative and where we all come from, um, at the end of the day, whether you're coming into the Uplands from bird dogs or you're coming in from the conservation side, uh, maybe you're coming in from a Learn to Hunt event, uh, when we get into that conversation, and ground, which is the uplands, it doesn't judge, you know, it, it doesn't, um, we're there side by side working together. And um, Darrell and I have been uh, trying to figure out a way, how can, how can pheasants forever and, and quail forever um, diversify to create um, advocates for conservation? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's our main goal. You know, we are trying to be um, relevant and diverse and really sell those stories. And so uh, Minority Outdoor Alliance and Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever actually this year are going to do some pilot programs through our Learn to Hunt initiative. And uh, we're going to work in a, a truly unique fashion where we're going to put on in five different states this fall coming up, we're going to put on Learn to Hunt Upland Bird Courses uh, for 10 mentors, 10 mentees, adults. These are adult events. Um, and we're going to have five instructors there. Um, and this is through Minority Outdoor Alliance. And um, we're so excited about it. I mean, every time we get in a room like this and yeah. talk, Darrell and I are just like, uh, it, you know, and, and five is just where we're at now for this right. fall. Right. But, you know, we were already talking last night, like, what's 2023 look like? Right. You know, how many of these can we do? How can we make this the norm, you know? it's something that's super exciting. So um, every time Jarell and I get on the phone and we, we talk about this new learn hunt initiative, it's uh, it's awesome. I'm super excited. Yep. So Jarell, what are the, what are the biggest challenges going to be with something like that? And what, what is the, What are some of the biggest challenges in getting people outside? One is just capacity. We hope that we have too many people. Yeah. And, 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 and we hope to have people from, like various states asking like, wait, are y'all doing that program here? I think one of the challenges is going to be accommodating the people that want to learn, but can't get to that program. Right. But we want to make it to where we, we know, okay, all right, we did it in five States, but we've got a lot of people over here that want to, all right, so let's create this program there. Um, I don't think we're going to have, I don't think I, I well, I'm sorry, let me, rephrase this how do i want to say this i think we're gonna have too many people trying to join the program i think so it's a good problem that's a good problem to have i think the biggest challenge is not making it relevant not showing people why this is important i think people get it 
I just want to be able to reach all 50 states, man. <laughs> and we just can't do it. So the other challenge is going to be how do we empower some of those people that, that went through this one program, right, the first year? How do we then empower them to, to help out, right? How do we empower new mentors and, and figure out how to reach there? Because Colby and I, we just can't be everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's a good problem to have. Chris, I wanted to ask, man, like, we want to do this program in uh, PA. What do you think some of the challenges are going to be as far as that state? Because, like, I know I asked you to help um, join us in this initiative. I mean, you're part of Minority Outdoor Alliance, but that's your state. You know that state better better than any of us do. What do you think? Well, I I mean, first I want to say I I could answer probably better for Western PA than than Eastern PA because that's my experience. That's where I am, you know, and – it's interesting. Pittsburgh, where I am, is is it's an interesting place because we can go in an hour in any direction and be in a state park. So we've got a pretty big outdoor component. Um, I can leave my house, which is essentially ostensibly downtown Pittsburgh, and it's not too far outside, five minutes outside of the city if I'm driving. But from there, in 25 minutes, I can be on a state game land where I can be hunting pheasant, which is pretty... I mean, that's not typical, I don't mm-hmm. think, from, from what is considered a city, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. And, and, and that's city, interesting. Yeah. And it, that brings its own unique challenges, too, because, you know, there's a, there can be some overcrowding. You yeah. know? I mean, people, people key in on when the – we don't have wild pheasant in PA. We can't they, – they don't seem to take. Um, so we have stocked pheasant, you know. And I, I think that's one challenge. You know, what – one of the biggest challenges, I think, with any of this is setting the expectations. You know, Mark and I were having this conversation earlier about what expectations are for new hunters, new fishermen, what they expect, fishermen, fishwomen, what they expect to get out of this. Because I, the concern is that you're going to go out and get a pheasant. Mm-hmm. Now, I've hunted a lot of state lands in PA and never gotten a pheasant. Yeah. That's just the way it is. I mean, they're stocked pheasant. There's a, there's a large population. So I think the challenge is ensuring, at least in, in, in my experience, ensuring that we're conveying the message that, like, look, this isn't about definitely going out and shooting a bird. This is about going out, understanding your environment, understanding what you have access to, and understanding that this is not called shooting, it's called hunting. You know, and, and I think that's a challenge. That that that's that's one of the challenges that that I get concerned with because particularly when we when we look at social media, you know, and, and I I get it. Social media is what social media is. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm more in the fly fishing world, and I, my joke is always that fly fishing is 500 people on Instagram trying to be famous for the other 499 people. Mm-hmm. You know, and. I, I, that's that's the challenge that I see, you know, in, in PA. I think there are plenty of the population that, that want to learn how to hunt. Mm-hmm. I think particularly in, in the space that I've that I've come from prior to, to MOA and, and, and working with you in MOA and, and, and trying to support you in, in that manner is that we know that there is a population, um, particularly in urban settings, you know, in, in city settings, that wants to get out, but doesn't have the equipment, the knowledge, or the opportunity. The mentors are, are the biggest, the biggest piece here. You know, finding the mentors that can get out there and do that is a huge deal. Yep. Yeah, and, I agree. I think, and, that, and, and, I, that I, and that's that's not. I mean, this isn't Pitt, This isn't Pennsylvania. This isn't Pittsburgh. This is, this is everywhere. You know, right. making sure that you have the mentors. So if you've got a program. That, that, that we can establish and where people have that opportunity and they know it's there, that's a big deal. And that's a huge step. Um, but, but I really think that, you know, part of that is just getting them, getting these potential hunters to understand that like, this doesn't mean you're going to, you're going to get a pheasant. Right? You know, and I think also, to be honest, I think um, the mentors make sure they understand that because I've seen situations where a new hunter goes out with a mentor and the mentor has a goal of getting a bird or getting a fish for that new new person out there. Mm-hmm. That new person may just be like, hey, you know what? I just want to go out and I want to flush a bird. Right. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. if I'm going to shoot or not. Mm-hmm. 
that happens all the time. And we need to make sure that that mentor knows that that's the pr- perspective of, of that new hunter, that they're, that they're okay, maybe not being successful. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think, um, I think that's important. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, from my perspective, particularly in, in, in bird hunting, in my experience in bird hunting, and you know, certainly Darrell and I have, have had this discussion, uh, you know, and Darrell has even said himself, you know, one of the exciting parts is, is watching the dog work, walking in the woods, seeing the dog go on point and flushing the bird. You know, that's, that is exciting in and of itself. You know, getting, getting the shot on the bird is, is a different story. And sometimes even seeing that, that bird is, is so to me, just having that experience of seeing the bird go up is a big deal. Yeah. Really trying hard not to make a joke about Darrell shooting a bird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is really hard. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take your joke. So Chris calls me the what? What is it? The world's uh, the world's first catch and release bird hunter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true conservationist, is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Really, is that is that what we're going to call? This? That's what we're going to call. <laughs> okay. I'm a true conservationist, yeah. right? You know, but I I want to I want to use that. You know, jokes not put aside. Like, I want to use that as a way for people to ask questions, right? Like, right. new guys are coming in, and they're like, hey, wait, you shoot that little itty-bitty little pew-pew gun? Like, what in the world? Like, why would you do that? That's a that's an opportunity for me to talk about the art of what it is that we're doing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's an opportunity for me to express how much bigger this picture is than just killing a bird. We're not, I'm sorry, man. Social media is dope. It's great. Built my whole platform off the thing. That's great. But we're not recruiting new hunters with whack them and stack them tailgate photos. Mm-hmm. We're not, that, that's a terrible recruitment mm-hmm. tool. Mm-hmm. It sets an expectation that is so far outside of the realm of reality. Yep. And then I just, I would, I would, I would be, wouldn't be myself to say that like nobody is shooting that many wild birds. No one is. Right. Okay, right. and if you are, I really got a conversation with you, right? And I think the recruitment tool is gonna be, you know, what I'm saying, being able to, you know, have those conversations of like, why do you make it so hard for yourself? Because huh. I want more time in the woods, right? I I want, I want to invest myself in the process, not the end result. We're, we're going to get new hunters and, and, and new mentors out there when these mentors understand that, like, you're a mentor because you understand what not, you know, what not having success looks like. And you still prevailed, right? We're not only teaching you how to hunt, where to hunt, you know, what this should look like. We're also teaching you resilience and connectivity, right? Like, we're connecting with the land. We're connecting with people through larger, larger than life objectives, because I can tell you, my little pew-pew gun that you like making fun of feels dang good when I do get one of them birds, right? You go yeah. shoot a bobwhite quail that's moving a billion miles an hour yeah. with a 410. Yeah. The feeling of satisfaction and, and knowing that like I was able to put all of these together and I did it on my own, that will have a new hunter going to sing those praises from the highest of highest of high mountains. Kobe, I was just telling you, man, it's got to be infectious, right? Like, you and I get on the phone and we're like, ah, we want to do this. We want to do that. Like, what happens if we get a hundred more people that are that excited about missing a bird? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? But they have that story, right? And that's when we get more comfortable being vulnerable. You know? In those mentors, as we talked about last night, Darrell, um, those are going to be local people that we connect with a common ground. So this is, even though we're going to come in and we're going to do this event, and, and these are weekend experiences is what we call them. So this is a Friday night, all day Saturday and into Sunday. So we're really building those relationships. We're sitting around the campfires we talked about. We're cooking the wild game together, you know. They're building bonds throughout that. And by the time the weekend's over, the ultimate goal is that if Darrell and I head back to our states, but we did want to in PA is that this group that is formed within PA on an individual level, the participants and the mentors hopefully find a great relationship there. But as a group too, we're going to keep them connected. There's going to be follow-ups. You know, we're going to make sure that that group has a support system because we know that just hosting one event isn't going to be enough. So we're hoping that it's lifelong relationships that are built. And as we continue, then it's like, how do we do this again next year? How do we, you know, it, it's just... 
such a ripple effect that this can have. Um, but we got to do the first event first. You know, that, that we got to get the experience on the ground. We got to get the right people there. And then at that point, like, how do we grow it? How do we make this a norm? You know, because I've already had, I'm sure you have, Darrell, multiple people when they've heard about what we're doing, like you said, is like, why aren't we doing in one in this state, you know? Yeah. And our answer is we can, you know, like, let's talk, let's figure this out. Yeah. Um, so, so we're just getting started with this, but um, those experiences that you talk about and, and setting those expectations, we will, it's not just going to be pheasant hunts either, you know? So yeah. we're going to do different species within those states to make it where you have access to that. You know, we're not going to go to a state um, if it's woodcock that we're hunting, because that's the species that's available that's fine. You know, we're not just set to pheasants and quail because of the logo on our chest. You know, we're going to do something that sets them up for success, but set that expectation also in the fact that in the weekend experience, they probably won't even get to get out and hunt until that Saturday afternoon, because Friday night, we're going to be talking about conservation and and building those relationships and breaking down barriers. You know, I'm the national hunting heritage program manager is that fancy title or whatever you want to call it. First thing I'm going to do at one of these events is talk about my story. And I didn't start hunting until I was 25 years old. You know, I'm, I'm not that experienced, you know, like talk about that, break down those bears. They think that I'm standing up here and I grew up traditionally and had all this chance, you know, to hunt and all of these types of things. There was no firearms in my household anywhere. I didn't have anybody in my family that hunted, fished, camped, any of that stuff. Now I'm basing my entire life around it and raising my family around it, telling those stories, Darrell telling his story, the other mentors, like when they hear those things, it's approachable, you know, then it's like, all right, we can learn together. And what I'm most excited about this whole series of events, as we're calling it, we almost like we put a little flyer together. It's like a tour date, you know, is I'm going to learn more at these events than these new hunters and these participants will over a weekend experience. I feel that I will truly take more away from that. And it's going to be every time I do one of these events and a long drive home or whatever, I feel like I learned so much more from the individuals just by listening to their stories and hearing what they have to say and what they've gone through um, than they'll ever realize. So even though they're the new people coming in and the participants, as we call it, I would say a lot of them are going to mentor me and us, you know, the instructors, as much as we're going to mentor them. Absolutely. And we know that model works, too. How many years ago did we do that, that, that pheasant? Uh, camp. The, the camp up in Minnesota, camp, yeah. that was, um, would have been two years ago it going two? on. It would have been three this fall. Three yep. this fall. So yesterday, my presentation, yeah. one of the guys who was there, Christopher was there. Christopher was at that camp as a new hunter, met two guys there, became hunting buddies, have hunted every season together now. They all just went out to Wyoming this last fall and all tagged out on antelope. And now it was here. It was here at the at, wow. at Pheasant Fest. Yeah, and so and that's the thing is exactly like you said. It's 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 doing that follow up. It's not a one and done scenario, right? It's got to be nurtured and has to keep going on. Right. And it's uh, I think it's art and science. And yeah. you brought Darrell. You brought the word art in earlier. And this is a question I've always been uh, wanted to ask you, which is with hunting overall, with the things that you're doing with it. Uh, you are a soon to be retired art teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, how does, how does the art, your art world and your hunting world overlap and connect? This is the question I like talking about. (laughs) Um, so my, my career, I am a, I am like by vocation, a fine artist, like, you know, abstract works, assemblage stuff, some more representational watercolor India, to do a lot of different things. And Number one, what that does is allow me to see the uplands as its own painting, right? Like it, it seriously, there are layers to it. You know, it's more than just what you're seeing at sunrise and all of that stuff, but it's like an impressionist painting, right? You see this, this, this big picture, right? And you know that there was a lot of work that went into it, but when you get a lot closer, you see all the little finite details that go on into it. And I just realized how similar that was to upland hunting right but then in, in, as a as an art teacher as an art educator and as, as a former student in art school m- myself along with my professors always preach about the process right the process and, and and being okay with change like 
the whole of the art world is always changing, right? You think you start out in one one idea and you end up left field over here and you have to be okay with adapting to that, right? But you know this picture in your head, right? You have the end result in your head and I think, you know, sometimes you have to detach yourself from that. You have to be okay with detaching from what you thought was the end result. The artwork is, is yeah, it's the visual, but it's the, the overarching message, you know? And then the, the, the tangential piece of, of art is learning about these nice shotguns, right? Like me going and asking gun makers, like, dude, tell me about how you like engrave that, right? Like, what's the process there? Like case color hardening, it, okay, like that vibrancy of those blues coming in, right? Those, those purples, all of that stuff that's happening, you know, in that heat process and in that metal, like, to me, that's like my, my art professors, like back in school, Scott Marini, like at Albany State, like he was this, this big rough and tough, like sculptor, right? And he was at home forging stuff and all of that. And it, he would come out with these beautiful metal pieces, right? These iron pieces and stuff like that. And to me, like, that is the, that is the gun maker, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the, the fine art piece of what we're doing. You know. I, I can see why you are drawn to upland hunting <laughs> because it is more so than any of the other types of hunting mm-hmm. has a very artistic side to mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's the firearms or, or the culture of it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's, that's great. You know, Chris, and I were talking earlier, you talk about the needing, the need to flex. You have this idea in your mind of what a hunt is going to be and needing to adjust. Right. Chris, talk a little bit about what we were, we were, you and I were talking about earlier in terms of going on a hunt, going fishing, and the things outside of your control determine what's going to happen, and it yeah, is not what you thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we as, as hunters, fisher, you know, fishing, fly fishing, or up on fish, we can control. You know, we can make sure our our guns are working we can make sure that we've scouted out a spot we can do this or that but we can't control things like water flow you know we can't control things like weather patterns and you know i I, the expectation in 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 this this goes to in our conversation i just returned from a trip to argentina where we were doing dove hunting and dorado fishing um which i highly recommend (laughs) (laughs) um but the fishing was terrible well, the fishing's terrible because the water's down. The water's the color of chocolate milk, and it's been down for two years. This is a drought, so the fish just aren't coming in. Yeah, but some of the folks that I was hunting with were upset by this. They were troubled by this. But those are things you can't control. Your control is, I can cast this way. I can present this way. I can hunt this way. I can do these things. But I can't control that water. I can't control that weather. And, you know, when the expectation is set, well, we're going to catch a big golden dorado or we're going to shoot you know, a thousand doves this morning. But then you go out to your dove stand and you're there five minutes and there's a crack of lightning right there. <laughs> you can't control that. That is beyond your control. So all of, you, all of a sudden your expectations are upended. And it, it's how you kind of adapt to those expectations and just understand that like look this is part of it this is part of it you know if you can't see in that water the fish can't see that well either so you got to change up how you're doing it and if you're not gonna if you don't catch a fish you don't catch a fish if you don't find a quail a wild quail in this area you don't find a wild quail you know i'm I'm from western pa our rough grouse population has been dwindling with west nile virus in places i used to go and find grouse every time i went out i don't see one now at all you know that's the first time one of the first things i sent to Darrell, he he asked me he said listen can you send me like like if you're going out something can you can you put together something so i said sure no problem so i took my little gopro and my camera and i i sent him this film it's called no grouse and he <laughs> said why is that i said because i went out with my dog and i walked all my spots all my property and didn't see a single thing that's you can't change that you know, that is part, and that's part of the experience, right? And if your experience and your expectation is more, I'm gonna pull this trigger, 
you know, you're likely to be disappointed. Exactly. You know, and, and it's and it's like I've got this graphic I created years ago that shows the, that sort of documents the general hunting process, scouting, thinking about types of hunting you want to do, etc., all the way through to cooking a meal, sharing it with family. In the very middle, there's this little spot that says squeezing the trigger. And I think so, so often we've focused on that as the, as the hunt. And I always tell people, it's like, look at everything before, look at everything after. That is the expectation. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the moment that you get. You know, I, I mean, the, we talk about all these things. I almost think that in, in some of the things we talk about when we're talking about taking people hunting and, and mentoring them is also to realize that we're looking for the birds, but take a look around. Right. Don't get so focused on what's in front of you that you don't see what's around you. Because we're all encumbered by these little devices that we carry in our pockets now. And more often than not, the places that we're going, these little devices don't work. And realizing what a precious moment that is, that all of a sudden, through things you can't control, you can't control if your phone's getting signal you lose those responsibilities for a little while and you're able to focus on that moment and that time and seeing what's around you. That's a big part of this, you know, walking through the woods of PA, looking for a grouse, walking through the state game lands, looking for a pheasant. The big part is I'm also seeing turkeys and deer and blue jays and all these things that are amazing. They're, they're beautiful. Well, that's, that's where I think he also, like you go out, Set the expectation of maybe we'll get something, maybe we won't. Enjoy the process. Enjoy the experience with or without game. But also then, from a, for a conservation organization, you now have somebody out there saying, boy, wouldn't it be nice if there were more birds? Mm-hmm. How come there aren't more birds? What can we do? Mm-hmm. And so now we've got a great, great start to somebody who's going to be a conservationist, you know? Yeah, that, that advocacy is so important, too. You know, getting someone so enwrapped and engulfed in that experience that they had whether they harvested a bird or not but understanding you know maybe it's the flowers that they picked up on maybe it's the scenery whatever it is that they're so passionate about it that they're willing to do something about it you know because that's a big step too you can have a lot of people who are passionate about hunting and and things but if they're not actually willing to take that step because it's you know we're, we're we're shrinking as numbers for advocates across this country for conservation and we need it more than ever you know and so when we have that diverse audience that's willing to take that next step it's it's critically important one thing that's so great about the uplands too that um i think our population in general even the sportsmen and sports women across this country are so disconnected from is they experience it in the fall mm-hmm. during hunting season but if you've ever went out in a prairie setting mm. in the summertime, in the spring, the life that is out there, not carrying a gun on your shoulder, but maybe you're following the bird dogs out there, training them. Maybe it's just going for a hike. Maybe it's just going out for the scenery, but the smells and the sights and the things that, you know, those upland birds live out there all year. You know, they're out there. We need to go out there and experience nature too, not just in the fall. And, and, and it really lets you absorb some of those things that you're talking about when you don't have an expectation in mind and you're just going out there to wonder. One of the most unique things that, that I've experienced as a father so far is when I took my seven-year-old daughter out and we went out and sat in a, in a turkey blind. We're turkey hunting. And she's at that age right now where, where she thinks she's an artist, you know, and um, she's always drawing and, and telling a story through her view compared to mine. And so I gave her a blank notebook and I had a blank notebook and we sat in the turkey blind that day. And I said, while we sit here, I want you to draw or write a word or whatever. Tell a story of what you've seen today. Yeah. And I did the same thing. And then afterwards, back at home, as we talked about our experience, we looked at, I showed her what I seen, and she showed me what she seen. And I showed her, you know, a picture of a turkey that I seen and I heard, and, you know, here's what I seen over here. And so I'm focused on this stuff. Yeah. She didn't care anything about that turkey that we seen, you know? She drew a rock, and she drew a little feather that she picked up, and she drew a donut, you know, from what we had for breakfast. Like we have to slow down and just take in those little moments, you know, because we always think I thought her experience that day was going to be that gobbler that she heard, you know, and the Turkey that we seen, it didn't even make the page that she wrote about. Wow. 
I love that you did I that. Love that is that, so dude. cool. That's fantastic. That's awesome, man. I'm gonna steal that from you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I do. I, I gotta, my, my daughter is. Uh, has 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 expressed more interest in in archery lately. Mm-hmm. And Chris and I were talking about archery earlier, and uh, I'm trying to think of creative, unique ways yeah. to to like get out in the woods and and do different things. I'm going to totally use that idea when we're yeah. out here this spring. Absolutely, is, I'm, I'm going to do the same. My daughter, growing up around six bird dogs, right? Like she's taking on some of that that interest in her. She's two, but she's also. Like your daughter really interested in art and for her to just go and pick a color, right? Like, what does this color represent to you? And, and all of that, like, that's how we create lifelong hunters. If we just mm-hmm. like encourage them to notice the little, especially if you're doing it intuitively, just keep encouraging them like, and not growing up with the assumption that they're going to get game. Right. You know, like as fathers, right? Like it's our responsibility to make sure that if we're going to bring more people, like what, you know, I want my daughter to be out there, you know, and, and, and she'll have a larger influence on teaching a larger picture. I, I think it's the, to the point, it's the, it's the memories of the thing, you know, and, and I would almost argue, I probably can't, I, I can't remember the pheasants I've shot but I can probably tell you something that happened on that hike or that, or that, that walk that was probably more involving to me. And I think particularly if you're trying to get kids involved, building that moment, because it could very well be that your daughter in 10 years is going to be like, yeah, I remember the donut. Yep. And that's, that's the thing. And having that almost for lack of a better term, heritage to that, you know, I, I don't remember. I, I mean, I sort of remember, taking my first deer I remember being there with my dad and I remember what my dad said and I remember him you know laughing at me after I got the deer about how fast I ran out to see that deer (laughs) Um, but I don't remember actually getting the deer yep yeah yeah. but all of those things are the things that I remember now anytime I'm in a tree stand that's my relation and I think those memories are what keep us coming back I agree 100% with everything that's just been said. Let me let me throw this out to you guys. I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. I gave a presentation to a fishing club a couple weeks ago. And I was talking about getting getting more people out. And I was t- actually talking, they were a catch and re- release fishing club. And so I talked about the whole idea of catch and release. Ice, and the, the, the subject uh, or the title of my talk was something along the lines of, of kill and eat more fish. Which to a catch and release club is like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and I told them, I'm, I'm like, I'm not anti-catch and release. Catch and release is an important part of fishing. However, there is real value in killing a few fish yeah. and eating them. And having that person, that new, that new fisher, you know, fillet that, that, that fish out and eat it and understand that, that connection at a very personal level. Um, what was brought up in the middle of it was, um, was a perspective that is there's always competition in the outdoors of hunting and fishing and, and, and a couple of guys. And so this was a big discussion because I said, actually, most of my hunting and fishing experience is more about community experience, not competition. So I'm curious, do you guys have, I mean, have you thought about that before? Is that something like, do you have groups where there is that, okay, hey, first, first person on the board, uh, whoever, fi- whoever fills out first or whatever, that type of, th- of a thing. And do you think it has a place in hunting or not? I think my, my, my first initial thing is a couple pieces to that that I want to break down. My first initial thing is I think at a point new hunters should experience success i think you should like we can preach about the process and all kinds of stuff but at the end of the day like you can't keep going out there not getting anything right so there has to be that semblance of success but we just shouldn't like that shouldn't be the end goal right but me personally honestly i feel trial you know a little bit here and there um, do a couple of things that should otherwise be explained con- for the new hunters. Field trial. So, um, down in the south, I'm a part of a, a, a uh, bird dog club, the Georgia Florida Shooting Dog Handlers Club. It's the Black Handlers Club. It's a tradition that we have down there. Well, ride horseback 
and there are two judges, basically whose dog can find the most birds and do it the best looking, according to some semblance of a standard, okay? Some semblance of one. Um, and that is inherently competitive. We jive each other. We talk trash to each other. And so, but it's fun. You see what I'm saying? Like, I want to hunt with people that are fun competitive. Hmm. If it's got to be competitive, and we're not even killing birds in that. So, hmm. like, you know, r- really, your success is, again, what your success comes from the process, not the end result. You're shooting a blank pistol. Um, and it's it's my dog versus your dog, just in various braces. But your dog is actually competing against all the dogs in the entire competition. Great, right? But when I'm hunting... I don't want to hunt with somebody, frankly, that is just just crazy bent on killing, 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 killing. Because it, it, it does take the fun out of it for me, right? I just, I think that there's value in a new hunter getting it. But, like, I mean, I've shot a lot of birds, man. I shot a lot of birds. And after a while, I mean, that, that it just isn't the driving force for me. I, I mean... And let's just be real. Like, if I really want to be competitive about killing, I'm not going to go with a 410. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just not. I'm going to go with a 12 gauge. And I just don't think harping on competition and who can shoot the most and who can do that. I think you lose a lot of people there. You know, it, it then becomes the Olympics and not just mm-hmm. a good time. You know, I, I think. Drell's addressed two two different points here. I mean, there is the competition, like the professional stuff you do with the dog handling. Yeah. And the same holds true in the fishing world, right? I can't stand fishing tournaments. Mm. And and I've done some, some projects where, like, it's a fishing tournament that raises money. And the challenge is always, like, first of all, I'm not good at it. <laughs> so I'm not going to catch the biggest fish. In fact... I'm so not good at catching the biggest fish that I finally just gave up and said, I'm just going after the smallest fish. And that's the competition that I enjoy because I now try to, you know, I'm like, all right, if you want to catch the biggest fish, that's great. Let's make this fun. I'm going to catch the smallest one. And those are all that little competition, which is humorous and, yeah. and lighthearted. You know, that stuff I think is a, is a driver because it's always like, Check this out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I caught this fish. This is this is my three inch trout. This is my two inch trout. Right, right. You know, and beat that. And and I think that, that that kind of thing can create an engagement that that between friends that, that makes yeah. it fun. To Darrell's point, yeah, I I'm not a, I'm a, I'm not a numbers guy. You know, I, I don't think that going out and trying to shoot a gazillion birds don't say it <laughs> a gazillion birds is going to be the right way unless you're dove hunting but that's a different story um but but even then you know it's just not i i, I that that gets a little sketchy i think at times too mm-hmm. it, it, the reality of it is though is we're out there pursuing a limited resource mm-hmm. so there's gonna be competition and you know and especially as it has gotten much more competitive for land access you know those are realities that we face you know and those are things that we have to educate not only our our new hunters about but the hunting base that we have right now the 12 million sportsmen and sportswomen across this country we have to continue to have those conversations and talk about you know that just because somebody thinks this little honey hole piece of public land is theirs, you know, we have to be able to share that resource. We have to share knowledge. Um, I know there's, there's a lot of, it's, I myself, when I go out and hunt, some of the things I like to do is as an archery deer hunters, I like to be by myself. I like the solitude of it. I like to get away from people. Um, and when you see other people, it's like instantaneously, you know, you see somebody else in your spot even though I know, okay, I'm going to pack up, I'm going to go somewhere else, I'm going to do something different, it hits you right away. That's the first thought that you have, you know, and, and that happens with a lot of sportsmen and sportswomen. You see somebody else and you think competition. We have to take that and then not just avoid it, not talk about it. You know, it's a limited resource. There's only so many deer out there. There's only so many grouse out there. There's only so many fish out there. We have to be able to really connect the dots with the current group of hunters across this country and 
have open conversations and say, okay, well, there is a limited resource. There's limited access. They're not making any more land. Public access is what it is. How can we work together for the future of this? Because this isn't about me. It's not about us. It's not about where we are today. But if we don't have a diverse, broad group of advocates, this is all going to go away. You know, we, we have to protect this together. Yeah, and it's an interesting point because that that's that's a competition that that is definitely there. It's a little bit different. I've always tried to, particularly on public lands. You know, I talk about the spot right outside of Pittsburgh. It's not a huge spot. You run into hunters all the time. I mean, that's you you know you're going to run into other bird hunters. And you know, I've always tried to take that opportunity to try to talk to them, and I've always had great success. But I also recognize, particularly, you know. Archery hunting is a little different because yep. you know, then people are protecting their their particular spots and their and, and I think that's also part of the community that's different. I think different communities like fishermen, you come across a fisherman in their spot and that that can be all at war, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I but upland hunters a little bit different than that. I've never had a bad experience with upland hunters. Where like, oh yeah, you, you finding anything? Uh, when we went pheasant hunting last year on public land, the first thing we saw was guys coming out. Hey, how'd you guys do? Oh, we limited out. You know, they're, we found them up in this area, you know, and, and that's helpful. That's great. So I think there's different different levels of, uh, of competition, but I think educating people that, yeah, this is a shared resource. Yeah. And it, especially when it comes to public lands and the different type of hunting, um, upland hunting, big game hunting, all of that, if we're not working together, we're, we're going to lose all of it, you know, um, Upland hunters alone aren't going to save this resource that we have. So we have to be, again, not talking about what type of gun are you shooting or you're using a crossbow versus you're using compound archery versus rifle hunters. You know, we cannot segregate the current groups that are already out there. And we have to be all working together to make sure that we are trying to protect this lifestyle that we have. Um, there, there's, all kinds of examples out there right now where seasons are being removed, you know, bear hunting, for example, what are taking a hit, you know, what, what, what does bear hunting have to do with me living in Nebraska as an upland hunter? We don't have bears in Nebraska. It, it has a lot to do with me and we have to be able to realize that and start advocating together. Um, because, Bear hunting, even though I've never gone bear hunting, never been around bears before, bear hunting has a lot to do with me and my family and everyone that I'm involved with working in the upland world. It has a lot to do with it, and people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. I think we've lived uh, in, a, in a wonderful time of where we've had the luxury of being able to segregate and be different groups and right. do our own thing, right? right. And, and we're beyond that now. We're at a point of and, – and, and mostly because we got – Population growth, development, encroachment—all these, all these factors, these challenges that aren't going to go away. They're just going to continue to to be um, an issue that needs to be dealt with. And like you said, Colby, I think all all outdoor groups just need to to work more effectively together, not do the they thing. But hey, you're out here doing your thing. I'm doing my thing. Let's respect that. And how do we again? How do we? Make sure that that resource stays healthy because it is a finite resource. Absolutely, and not, and also look for. You brought up a good point a moment ago. How do we? How do we look to the future and not just today and not just where I'm at, mm-hmm. but just say, hey, you know what? This is important for everybody. These are in, in a lot of times public lands, you know. So we're sharing together. Um, well, hey, this has been a fun conversation, and uh, we're going to have many more. I know. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing people, there are going to be some people listening to this who are going to say, where, where are these learn to hunt things that, yeah. uh, that, uh, that are going on? I'm guessing we probably don't have a place to direct them, but we can say maybe in the show notes. Yes. Are you going to put this on yours? Yes. I'll put it on mine, I'm and we'll put, we'll yes, put a link in there as to yes. where people can get more info, right? Um, I'm going to put it in the show notes, yes. Reach out to me, reach out to Colby. Mine's, my email address is DarrellSmith at MinorityOutdoorAlliance.org. Um, Colby? Your email? It's ckerber at pheasantsforever.org. Yep. yep. There we go. Reach Perfect. out to us. But, yes, it'll be in the show notes because um, we want to get people signing up, right? You Give us a holler. Say, hey, look, I'm going to be in this state. We'll be Georgia, South Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania, Nebraska, and Colorado. Give us a holler if you want to do it. 
you know, give us a holler. We'll go ahead and put you on the list and, and, and get this thing rolling. And even if you're not from one of those states, yeah. you know, if you're from a different state, again, give us a call. Give like, a we're, we're looking to grow this. And, you know, just because we have five set for right now doesn't mean we can't do more. Absolutely. We did a turkey hunt last spring in Minnesota. Had people from New York, Long Island, Texas fly in for it. It nice. was so fun. One of the gals from Texas got turkey on the on the first day. It was it was just the highlight of the weekend. It's uh, and it was a great camp. It was a great Absolutely. camp. Yeah, so I'm thrilled. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, I can't wait to to hear the stories that are going to come out of the camps, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk more soon. Cool. Thank you for having us on, man. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you Drill. Yes, Thank you, Chris. Sir. Thanks, Colby. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com. 